You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's episode of SpyCast. My name is Aaron, and I'm an intern working with Andrew on the show, and he thought it would be great to let you all hear my voice. This week's guest, Raji Jeffries-Jones, is an emeritus professor of American history at the University of Edinburgh. He has been studying American intelligence for half a century and has written a history of the CIA to coincide with its 75th anniversary entitled A Question of Standing. This episode with Raji is a counterpoint to last week's episode interviewed with Robert Gates, a career historian and a career intelligence officer a European, and an American, a 70,000-feet view, and a 30,000-feet one. Interestingly, they were born continents apart within a year of each other. He is the author of over a dozen books, has a PhD from Cambridge University, and grew up in Harlech Wells. In this episode, Andrew and Rodri discuss the founding of the CIA just as America became a global superpower, the CIA and the American presidents they served, covert action in Iran, Guatemala, and Chile, and the role of intelligence in a democratic society. If you're a fan of the podcast, Andrew and I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a kind review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure to check out this week's show notes for resources to learn more. Thanks for listening and enjoy this week's episode. Well, it's a pleasure to speak to you, Rodri. The last time I saw you was a couple of years ago at the beginning of the pandemic when we'd done a public program. So we're here today to speak about your book, A Question of Standing, The History of the CIA. And the first thing that I want to ask, just before we dig deeper into your book, is at the beginning you talk about this potential CIA conference on the Isle of Skye overlooking the Coolin Mountains that would just involve drinking scotch and talking about the history of the CIA. Um, That sounds like pretty much the best conference imaginable. (laughs) <laughs> well, why did it not happen? Well, this was uh, Richard Harris Smith, who was um, <clears throat> a force to be reckoned with uh, in the CIA in the 1960s. And uh, I, I grew to be uh, very very uh, friendly with him and had uh, a lot of good chats. And we saw eye to eye on a lot of things. I liked his book on the history of the OSS, especially um, the bits where he criticises British imperial ambitions in India. So we saw eye to eye in a lot of things. And he said, well, why don't we organize a conference on the Isle of Skye? And uh, I said, well, why don't we have it in Dunvegan Castle? Perhaps we can uh, organize that. He said, well, what should we drink? And I said, well, the Isle of Skye has very famous whiskies, but my favorite is Macallan's. And he said, well, that's great because that's all we drink in the CIA. So this is 
This is time to come out with the 75th anniversary of the Central Intelligence Agency. How did you first get involved in studying intelligence? Because I believe you used to study the political left, the new left, and then you moved on to the CIA. How did that transition take place? What happened was that um, my PhD dissertation was on violence in industrial relations in the United States. And uh, one of the things that uh, rose from that was my interest in the left. And eventually I published a book on it in uh, uh, 2013. But one of the aspects of it that uh, crossed over to the, the two fields, as it were, was the phenomenon of labor espionage, spying on workers, the role of, um, for example, the Pinkerton Agency in, in spying on, on labor unions. And I was in a conversation with a couple of friends, one of them at Cambridge University, who, who thought my whole uh, PhD was extremely boring, except for this one bit uh, where I talked about spies. And then I got the same reaction from someone uh, later on called Draguilio Zivianovich, who is a very fine Yugoslav historian. He said, well, this is what I find interesting, but why don't you go down to the Sterling Library in Yale, where they hold the papers of Somerset Maugham, the uh, the novelist. And, and Maugham was um, an English novelist and essayist who was also um, a secret agent for the British he published um, semi-fictional accounts of this in a, a book called Ashington. Now, um, Maugham was also, however, taken on by uh, American intelligence, uh, because, partly because the, the British turned against him uh, because he had a homosexual uh, relationship. I, I found this all very interesting and wrote an essay about Somerset Maugham, and this was... Uh, in the early 1970s. And then all of a sudden, there was uh, the big um, stramash about American intelligence in the mid-70s with a major congressional investigation. So the whole topic became a hot topic, as it were. And I turned my um, efforts to write, writing a book, which was a survey of uh, American espionage generally. And it was called American Espionage from Secret Service to CIA. And one of the Encouraging um, uh, factors there was that uh, the book that arose from my thesis, which is about labor unions and violence, um, as my two friends had predicted, everybody found that very boring. And I only got a, a publisher uh, literally at my 33rd attempt. Wow. Whereas um, writing about uh, intelligence, it was snapped up straight away by the, by the free press. So that's partly an answer to the uh, to, to the question why I pursued that line. People were very interested in it, and it's always tempting to write for uh, an interested audience. So you've been studying American intelligence for fifty years. I guess there must have been yes, uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and did you ever think about moving into British intelligence, or was your interest always in the United States? My interest is always in the United States. Um, I think that um, there were already a cadre of people working on the history of British intelligence. U.S. intelligence, by comparison, was a comparatively uh, neglected field. So I, I did stick with the American theme, though later on I got to be interested in Anglo-American intelligence relations and wrote, wrote a history of, of that. So to a certain limited degree... I got to know a little bit about British intelligence and interviewed people like David Omand, who is a leading uh, figure in recent intelligent history. When you set out to write this book, what is it you were trying to do? Well, I set out to write a history of the CIA, which um, did two things. First, looked at the antecedents of the CIA quite carefully. And second, uh, brought it right up to the present because there wasn't really anything um, substantial available on the history of the uh, CIA in, in the present century. So that was uh, my goal. Uh, I also started off with a, a kind of thesis, which was that the efficacy of the CIA depends on its standing. Now, I think that people familiar with uh, Washington, D.C. politics will immediately... Um, agree with this phenomenon that um, it, it all depends where you are in the pecking order and um, 
when did you last see the presidents, this kind of thing. So uh, I think that's kind of a fairly obvious thing to say. But there are other aspects to the question too, which uh, interested me. Uh, one of them was the degree of interest by the presidents and uh, the, competence, the competence of particular presidents in handling intelligent matters. The other, of course, is the quality of the findings that the CIA presented the presidents. But also I was interested in um, the role of Congress and public opinion, because if the CIA is not in good standing with the American people, and this is one of its great virtues and advantages, uh, that it was democratically established, the first uh, intelligence agency in the world to have legislative underpinning. Uh, And that's a great source of strength, in my view, to the agency. But if for some reason it um, uh, becomes uh, less popular with the American public, that's uh, a problem. But um, as the book progressed, I, I, I then began to look at also the history of the CIA and its actions in relation to the standing of the United States itself. I asked myself, uh, what impact has that had on American soft diplomacy and the American standing in the world? It's quite interesting the way that you describe it in the book. You're basically saying that at the end of the Second World War, America comes out of the war as the major world superpower, but it has never had a permanent central intelligence agency. So all of a sudden the CIA has responsibilities all over the world. It has to get up to speed really, really quickly. I find that quite interesting because it's is that's when it's born, but it's born just at the moment that America's became the world's biggest superpower. So it didn't have a lot of time to organically grow as America organically grew. Yes, it was a huge ask for the uh, CIA to basically get on top of world politics and to know something about literally uh, every country in the world and the flow of politics and influence and so on in every country in the world. Um, I mean, it wasn't uh, without its uh, antecedents. Uh, For example, the FBI had a brief uh, to run intelligence in in the Americas. but you had to give up when the CIA was established. But even there, it wasn't much of a brief because J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director, was so annoyed that the CIA got the whole of the international brief that he um, refrained from handing over to the CIA its, the FBI's well-established agents in, in, in South America. So even that wasn't a, a, a huge help to the CIA. And there had been uh, antecedents, for example, in the... First World War, there was a very obscure organization called U1, the letter U being the first letter in Undersecretary of State. This was the person who had responsibility for running it. This was a purely intelligence unit, which did some intelligence gathering, coordination of intelligence, and and some analysis. U1 continued for, for a few years after the Treaty of Versailles entirely disbanded because of the view that um, the view in the State Department in in, in particular uh, that trust was an important ingredient in international relations and the State Department didn't want to be associated with uh, a unit which could be regarded as engaging in (coughs) skullduggery, though I wouldn't really associate uh, U1 with that, but that that was the feeling in the State Department. <clears throat> and uh, to a certain extent, that's continued right through because, of course, the CIA is an independent stand-up unit and independent from the State Department. That uh, suited the State Department very well, although it is sometimes uh, jealous, of course, of the CIA's influence and standing. One of the things that I found fascinating was you say that the Secret Service, America's first set up by executive order, what would later go on to become the FBI is set up by executive order. The OSS is set up by executive order, but the CIA actually has legislative footing. That That's quite interesting. And you say it's the world's first intelligence agency established with a democratic mandate. It is, it is yes. Um, I mean, if you make a comparison with uh, the UK, 
um, MI5 and uh, MI6 uh, had no such mandates and their very uh, existence was meant to be a secret. And even in, uh, until recent years, the uh, name of the director of MI5, MI6 was supposed to be a secret. Uh, I mean, quite a few people knew who it was, uh, but in theory, uh, that, that was a secret. T- tell us a little bit more about the founding of the CIA. Give our listeners a bit of context about how that comes about. Well, there was, um, at the end of the war, um, Truman uh, disbanded OSS, which was uh, a wartime intelligence agency, which some people think uh, was an antecedent of the uh, CIA, although I think that um, we need to be a bit careful uh, in making that comparison. So at the end of the Second World War, uh, America didn't really have much of an intelligence capacity at all. Uh, uh, President Truman established... Uh, a um, central intelligence group and some former OSS people were imported into that together with some army intelligence people but it was a very minor unit Uh, at this point of course the uh, Cold War started and Churchill made his famous speech in Fulton, Missouri about the Iron Curtain descending across Europe Uh, and and President Truman uh, although um, He's regarded sometimes as a bit, being a bit naive, and he himself categorized him uh, himself as someone who was really shocked and an innocent in the context of international relations. He nevertheless, uh, very early on, recognized that the Soviet Union was going to be a serious problem, and he commissioned from the Central Intelligence Group um, as his very first report, uh, a report on uh, what kind of threats would one could anticipate from Moscow? Uh, now, that, that's one of the most important threads <clears throat> feeding into the establishment of the CIA, and particularly important, of course, because the president of the United States had this concern. But there's another uh, very important threat uh, thread that feeds into it, and that is Pearl Harbor. America had been caught unawares uh, in 1941 by the surprise attack. And when you look at the congressional debates on the establishment of the CIA, nobody, literally nobody, mentions the Soviet threats. Many people, in fact, everybody, mentions Pearl Harbor at length. So when it comes to legislative intent, and and, uh, one can understand why, because a lot of people in Congress had relatives in the armed forces, some of them had people who'd been killed in Pearl Harbor. Some of them were ex-servicemen themselves. You can understand why this is in the forefront of their concerns. That's what that's what they were concerned about. Uh, so there are two uh, streams of motive going into the establishment of the CIA, and I think that's important because um, it, it actually becomes important in the 1990s, much much later, because the Cold War has ended. Uh, Soviet Union, people thought at the time, Russia and the Soviet Union no longer uh, pose a threat to the United States. And and it was quite a serious uh, demand for the disbandment of the uh, agency, uh, led by Senator Moynihan, who introduced uh, a bill for its um, uh, abolition. Moynihan believed that intelligence should be reintegrated into the Department of State, where it had been in the in the First World War, um, but um, the very fact that the legislative intent behind the CIA was not purely to do with frustrating the Soviet Union, then gave the CIA a ration, rationale for continuing in the 1990s. Because if Pearl Harbor was also the the, the avoidance of future Pearl Harbors was also uh, an, an important task for the CIA, then that gave it uh, uh, a reason for continuation after the end of the of the Cold War. So what you had in the 1990s was fewer resources being devoted to the CIA, but uh, not many people really agreed with Senator Monihan that the uh, agency should be disbanded entirely. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler, 
You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. I found that a really fascinating part of the book because that's going against the grain of the prevailing wisdom that when you think CIA, you think Soviet Union. But in the legislative debates anyway, you're saying that that isn't mentioned at all. It's all about uh, avoiding a future Pearl Harbor. And avoiding a future Pearl Harbor is something that never goes away, whereas a political entity like the Soviet Union obviously did go away. That's right, yeah. I mean, obviously the Soviet Union became a major concern. And many of the legislators uh, who had been uh, primarily concerned with Pearl Harbor in 1947, when the agency was established, uh, went along with the uh, consensus that the Soviet Union was the main threat to the United States. Uh, But nevertheless, I think it's it's important to remember that the CIA was established as a a catch-all intelligence agency and and not as purely a Cold War War instrument. So uh, I just want to take a brief segue into discussing intelligence failure. I've been thinking about where to place this issue in the context of the interview. And I feel like now we've just discussed Pearl Harbor and the CIA's reason for existing, this might be a good place to discuss it. And what I'm trying to get at is this idea of intelligence failure. So I thought, who better to ask than an emeritus professor at Edinburgh University who's been studying this issue for 50 years. It seems to me that political scientists can't predict the future. Economists can't predict the future. Sociologists can't predict the future. So just as a historian who's got a really good understanding of cause and effect and how one thing can lead to another, how realistic is this task of prediction of where the world's going to go? And, and I guess it's a matter of degrees, right? Like one is, well, your enemy has said in a public speech that they're going to attack you on the 4th of May 2026 and you don't do anything about it, then that's intelligence failure. But if it's just some tea leaves in a cup that can be interpreted 50 different ways, how much can you be held to account for not interpreting them and the one way in which it actually turns out. So I guess I'm just trying to take advantage of your knowledge of how the historical process actually works and this idea of prediction. Is this rooted in some kind of false enlightenment idea about what we can use knowledge for? Or, yeah, just talk around this or help me understand your view on this idea of intelligence failure and I know that the examples are different. Pearl Harbor is different from Korea, which is different from the end of the Soviet Union, which is different from the end of 9-11. But just at a more general level, help me understand your thinking on this idea of prediction and intelligence failure as a historian. Well, I think we can uh, go back to the debate about the CIA in the 1940s. Um, One of the persons who had uh, an input was a guy called Wilmur Kendall who was in intelligence for a while, and then later on became quite a famous neoconservative philosopher. He was very critical of the idea that the CIA should be established in order to preempt surprise. He'd he'd listened to the debate in Congress about Pearl Harbor. He said, you you just can't uh, predict everything that's going to happen in, in the future. If you model yourself on what happened in the past, then uh, you're going to be caught out again because people know that's what you're modelling. It's like um, the battleship becoming um, obsolete in World War Two. Uh, it happens all, all the time. And, but but sometimes the the admirals, you know, they get they get caught in a time warp. And they say, "This is what works." You know, we had victory with with, with this last time. Um, <clears throat> so it's, it's, I think that CIA finds itself in a very difficult position there. Um, 
the history uh, does repeat itself, but uh, never in the same way. Never repeats itself, repeats itself exactly. So it's very valuable. And uh, and there have been a lot of historians uh, in in the CIA. In fact, I think uh, I think seven uh, presidents of the American Historical Association were at some point either in uh, the OSS or in the CIA. Uh, so, so there is a link between the, the two. The, the past is is, is um, very useful, guys, to the, to the future, but it doesn't give you uh, the precise time and place where something is going to happen, and that tends to be where the CIA comes for, in for heavy heavy criticism. I mean, for example, uh, in in the case of nine eleven, there was plenty of warning coming out from the CIA about uh, an imminent attack. Uh, they knew who was planning it. They knew that it was going to probably involve uh, aircraft. Um, they knew that uh, the Pentagon was likely to be uh, a, a target. They had a rough idea who the personnel were, but they couldn't identify the precise uh, place and the precise time. And and doing that, it can be done, uh, but it's a huge ask of uh, any uh, any organisation. But when it comes to failure, I mean, the CIA has really been hit on the head by people who are being um, wise after the event. Time and time again, people say, you know, the CIA got this wrong. And of course, there is a whole uh, list, list of failures. But what people tend to forget is the successes that the CIA has had, which uh, I, I suggest far outweigh the, the, the failures. Um, and... Um, uh, one must remember that uh, we don't know about all the successes purely uh, because of the nature of the organization and and and, and what it does. They kind of trumpet their successes very often because it will uh, betray what they know, who's doing it, their methodology. It seems to me as well that it's, it's also in a difficult position because it's not as if they can come out swinging, being defensive about what they're doing because of the nature of the work. So it's, I know it's a little bit of a cliche, but it's the whole idea of there's policy successes and intelligence failures. That's, I think, uh, connected with the idea that the director of the CIA is uh, always a fall guy. If something goes wrong, uh, it's, it's expected that he should uh, take the blame uh, whether that's right or wrong. I mean, the, the famous um, wordplay on this took place between Alan Dulles and John F. Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs fiasco, uh, when um, Kennedy, of course, uh, when Kennedy fired um, both uh, Dulles and uh, Richard Bristol. And uh, Kennedy explained to Dulles that if, if this were the United Kingdom, I'd have to resign. I'd have to take responsibility. But it isn't. We have this, this, this different system here. You have to resign. And, and the CIA took it. When the, and of course, uh, there were mistakes in the Bay of Pigs, as, as the CIA's own reports um, indicates. Uh, e- equally, however, it was, um, there were uh, uh, poor decision-making in the White House. That's a perfect segue on to the next set of issues that I wanted to discuss. So in the book, you speak about some of the covert actions in the early days. You speak about Guatemala, Iran. These examples or this uptick in these types of activities in this period because they, they trail off to a certain extent and you don't quite see You see Chile in 1973, but you don't see it quite so much when people think of the bad things that the CIA were involved in, they quite often think of Iran and Guatemala. Why did that happen? Was this because of Eisenhower administration? Is it because Dulles was a hardliner? Is it because the CIA was still learning the chops of being an intelligence agency or conducting covert action? Was it overambitious and it just hadn't quite got up to speed with what it took to do this type of stuff. Help us understand your analysis of why these happen and then why they stop happening as frequently. Right, I think if, when you look at um, Iran and uh, 
Sorry, if you could just really briefly, I, I, I realise that listeners may not know what those are, so if you just really briefly insert what happened with both of them and then go on to your point. In both um, Iran and Guatemala, in the early 1950s, they had uh, democratically elected governments. Uh, Mossadegh was the prime minister in Iran and Arbenz in, uh, in, in Guatemala. But both of these countries, both these governments were leftward leaning and uh, the uh, government of the day thought that um, this might entail um, moves against American business uh, and it might entail those countries uh, eventually falling within the uh, Soviet orbit. And so the uh, CIA participated in the events which led to the overthrow of those two people with the installation of dictatorial regimes uh, in, in each case. And in the case of Iran, it is, this was proved to be a very long-term headache for United States foreign policy. But I, I would characterize them both as um, uh, f- failures masquerading as successes, because within the administrations at the time, they were thought to be great uh, successes. Now, um, why is this, um, to a certain degree, uh, a finite uh, phenomenon? First, I think that um, there must have been some realization uh, how unpopular these actions were uh, in the international community. So by the end of the 1950s, for example, the United States had lost its majority in the General Assembly of the United Nations, which was um, an international organization of its own creation, established in San Francisco, headquarters in New York, um, and, and yet the United States could no longer command the majority there by the late uh, 1950s. And I think that um, there was a realization that was partly because of the actions that America had taken, such as uh, in uh, Guatemala and Iran. But I, I think you, you, you've got to ask also, if you ask why the 1950s, you've got to ask why not earlier? Why did the United States not uh, engage in similar practices earlier on? It, it, it's uh, interesting that... Um, First, um, uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War, uh, there was a determination not to declare war anymore. You, you couldn't achieve the objectives by declaring war. I mean, you can see Putin today, for example, has not declared war on, on the Ukraine. Second, there's the importance of the Montevideo Conference of 1933, which is a Pan-American meeting at which... Franklin D. Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, agreed along with all the other uh, participants that they would never again intervene in the internal affairs of another American country. And what uh, was meant by that was sending the Marines in. Because up up till then, if there had been a problem with um, um, uh, financial instability or a threat to American economic economic interests, you sent the Marines in. And once they sorted things out, then you return the country to their owners. Uh, but this is extremely unpopular. Now, after the uh, Montevideo conference, if the United States had a pro- problem in a particular country, you couldn't send the Marines in. You couldn't declare war uh, after 1945. And so the answer was to uh, engage in more surreptitious actions, which could not be attributed to American policymakers. So that's why I think in the 1950s, you have a takeoff in that kind of con- undercover uh, operation. And if it's finite, and it is a comment of the long tail, as, as you pointed out, uh, the examples in Chile, uh, Nicaragua, and so on, uh, later on. But uh, insofar as it's a specific uh, time-defined phenomenon, uh, I think that's uh, part of the reasoning. And the Iran one is with us until this day, right? I think it's really interesting that in the book you, you describe it as like the American Revolution in reverse, where George III was put back on the throne. And of course, in Iran, things turned out very differently in the long run. That's right. Well, the Shah was uh, reinstalled and given um, dictatorial powers. And uh, it turned out to be a very oppressive regime. The the internal secret service, SAVAK, was a pretty ruthless uh, organisation. But looked at from the outside, it was sometimes uh, sometimes seen to be a progressive regime. So the Shah 
in the 1960s had what he called the White Revolution. That meant uh, better rights for women, um, better education, uh, a whole series of reforms of, of, of that kind. So looked at through uh, Western spectacles, for example, through uh, feminist spectacles, uh, things seem to be going well. And one can understand in a way why uh, the United States placed its confidence in, in the Shah. But of course, it all came unstuck. How much do you think that these two events, Iran and Guatemala, have defined the way that the CIA was perceived around the world? When did this knowledge of both of them come out? When was it acknowledged that someone had their thumb on the scale and touted things one way or the other? I think that um, if you um, talk to people from the countries concerned, they knew about it all along in the 1950s. And I remember going to um, cocktail parties in the 1950s and uh, people would say, where does, where does all the money come from? This is a very expensive event. And people would say, oh, the CIA. And it was kind of partly a joke, but it turned out in the end that uh, the CIA did um, subsidise a lot of things like that. So uh, I think that people through the world knew about it, uh, but the people kept in the dark were the citizens of the United States themselves. And realisation of what was going on there really only began to uh, leak out in the 1960s, perhaps when Rampant's magazine, which is a Catholic progressive magazine in California in 1967, published uh, uh, a series of articles uh, showing how the CIA had recruited organisations like the National Students Association to influence events in foreign countries. But the emphasis in 1967 was on the way in which the CIA has it, uh, had kind of suborned American citizens uh, when it wasn't supposed to operate at home at all. The FBI had the domestic remit and the CIA was supposed to confine its activities to overseas. But also there was a, a dawning realisation that something had been going on overseas that uh, people were not so uh, aware of. Then the whole... Um, uh, the, the, the uh, lid came off the uh, the kettle, as it were, in the 1970s with the major revelations then. But there, there were, I think, um, suspicions earlier on uh, in domestic politics that the CIA was up to no good, as it were. Um, Senator Joe McCarthy, um, in his um, uh, scare years, had the number one as his prime target, because he said that uh, the CIA contained communists. And just before we leave regime change by covert action, it's interesting that you point out that there's a double standard that European nations are allowed to choose some combination of liberalism, capitalism and socialism uh, and make their own cocktail from that. And you say that that's what most nations want. Every nation's got some degree of socialism, you know, socialised freeways, socialised street lamps, socialised public education. So you say that for Western nations, you're allowed to choose which combination you want. But as soon as socialism is involved in places that are in, say, South America, then all of a sudden it becomes a problem. I think there's a, certainly an element of, of truth in that. Um, uh, I think that's uh, partly it's um, a pragmatic uh, approach. Uh, Americans, um, rightly or wrongly, think that uh, Europe is um, politically mature and can handle left of centre governments without having a lurch to the left, whereas uh, countries in developing countries are a little bit less unstable. Uh, their tradition of uh, d democracy is not as old. And so uh, any kind of uh, move towards the left uh, is a danger of getting out of control and making them susceptible to uh, communist influence. Well, uh, perhaps I should say that in the, in the past tense, because um, it seems to me that um, co communist influence is, is pretty much a, a dead duck these days. It, you couldn't possibly describe Russia as being communist. And although the uh, China is um, 
in theory, run by the Communist Party. Many elements of Chinese life, critical elements of Chinese uh, life have no bearing on communism whatsoever. But nevertheless, uh, I suppose that you could argue that uh, some people uh, maintain there's a danger of countries relating to the left, but uh, I think it's, it's more of a historical phenomenon than the present-day one. And just to put some of those comments in historical context, in the, when the United Nations is founded, we're talking around 50 states, but nowadays we've got 192 states. So well, during these early years of the CIA, there's a tremendous growth in the number of states around the world. Um, and in those states, I guess you could argue that, yeah, maybe there's more danger with... Uh, left-wing government becoming communist and and it's staying that way and it ossifying and being that way forever because there's not been this tradition of the recalibration of political power through elections and so forth. So you mentioned this in the book, Sidney Gottlieb, allegations of Castro, Patrick Lumumba, Trujillo, um, and then we get up to the the church committee and the heart attack gun and so forth. Tell us a little bit about the, the history of assassinations uh, and the CIA. Well, uh, the interesting one interesting thing about that is that uh, the United States never did uh, assassinate a head of states. Uh, there were preparations for such assassinations and uh, Gottlieb's health alteration committee is linked to that, as you, as you say. Uh, and um, that's such an interesting name, the Health Alteration Committee. It is, yes, yes. <laughs> straight out of George Orwell. Um, um, but uh, as you know, in the case of Patrice Lumumba, who was the president of uh, of, of the Congo, newly independent Congo, uh, there was a, a plan to assass- assassinate him, but the uh, Belgian um, special services got there first and killed him uh, before the CIA could. And there were many attempts to uh, get rid of Castro, but uh, none of them succeeded. But nevertheless, the revelation that there had been plans to assassinate foreign leaders was highly sensitive in the 1970s, largely, I think, because there had been a wave of domestic assassinations in the United States with John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Malcolm X, um, Martin Luther King, and so on. Uh, So um, that was a very uh, sensitive subject. An interesting thing about assassination is the way in which it was banned. Uh, President Ford issued an executive order banning assassination. And it's interesting that he was, he was quicker in the draw in doing that than Congress. Now, had Congress legislated against assassination, it would have had a more enduring effect, probably. Uh, but although later on other presidents repeated the uh, uh, executive order, uh, President Reagan, for example, gradually uh, that uh, ban on assassination began to fade in its uh, efficacy, possibly because it is only an executive order and not a law passed by Congress and signed by the president. So one of the other things that I wanted to ask was, it's quite interesting to me that you speak about how in the early days the CIA was seen as being towards the left, but then it begins to be seen as a more right-wing organ, more to the right. So ostensibly it's non-political, right? It's apolitical, but help us understand as a historian, how have you seen the CIA evolve politically or how do you... How has it been perceived to have evolved politically, whether or not that actually was the case? I think it's the last point you make there that's uh, important. Uh, the CIA is meant to be uh, apolitical, and um, I think they, they always try their very best. Nobody's perfect, everybody holds uh, political views after all. But as an organisation, institutionally, uh, it has always uh, tried to be apolitically apolitical and uh, fairly successfully. But what's varied is the opinion of the of the CIA. So um, g- gradually, um, the, the CIA uh, was the brainchild of liberals. You could um, describe it in the uh, year 1947 as 
yet another New Deal agency, you know, in the New Deal, just liberal uh, experiment of governments. If there was a problem, they invented a government agency to deal with it. And CIA's uh, continuation of that. Truman was a liberal in domestic politics. The opposition to communism had a strongly uh, liberal thrust to it. So you, you could see the, the CIA as being a liberal organization in terms of American politics. But outside America, people took a different line and uh, thought of it as the instrument of uh, right-wing cartels and the super rich and, 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 and so on. Uh, now, d- domestically, uh, of course, uh, Eisenhower was no liberal and liberal, and he was a great supporter of the uh, of the CIA. But the Republicans didn't really warm to the CIA until it came he- under heavy attack in the 1970s. It's a complex picture because people had all kinds of different attitudes. But by the 1980s, I think you you begin to see the CIA as being. Uh, something which is in the conservative pantheon, something that they look up to uh, and and admire. And that continues uh, for for some time. Recently, uh, in the uh, 2016, uh, only 3% of of Republicans approved of the CIA. And that, of course, was uh, because of its perceived role in exposing the Russian meddling in the presidential election of 2016. So there's been quite a, a, a dramatic flux in public attitudes towards the CIA, CIA, defining public attitudes as left-wing or right-wing or liberal or, 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 or conservative. And I think that's a much more significant phenomenon than any such fluctuations in the CIA itself. Your book's titled A Question of Standing. Help us understand that standing with presidents. So we don't have time to go into each one, but Lyndon Baines Johnson, he's got a very colourful story about the CIA, which I'm not going to repeat on here. Nixon has got the clowns out at Langley. They're not particular fans of the CIA. Then you've got Carter who comes into office saying that he's going to clean them up and then he embraces them after the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan in 1879. Reagan embraces the CIA. George H.W. Bush does... But then Clinton's uh, CIA director, uh, James Woolsey, a plane crashes in the White House grounds and the joke at Langley is that's the director trying to get some face time with the president. So there's a lot of ground to cover there, but help us understand that relationship as you view it from your 70,000 feet view of the president and the CIA. 75,000 feet. 75, sorry. (laughs) Uh, well, well, I think, 5,000 uh, above year two. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, exam, the examples you give uh, are good ones, and uh, I, I agree with them all. Uh, uh, there were presidents, of course, who uh, pl- placed the value on the CIA and respected its output. Uh, I think, I mean, I'd include uh, Truman there, uh, although that's partly because, of course, Truman told it uh, what his business should be. And the CIA did that business, and, and so he liked it. You know, that was good. Um, he, he, he was a bit of a moaner. I mean, you, you can find Truman moaning about the CIA, but essentially he was supportive. Although uh, infamously, uh, after the Bay of Pigs, he said he, he, he never approved of that kind of thing. But that's just him being a bit uh, op- opportunistic. Now, Eisenhower, um, I think, was... Um, very good uh, with uh, intelligence, and uh, I'm certainly not alone in thinking that uh, ser- serious historians of the Eisenhower presidency would go along with that. Uh, Eisenhower had uh, huge experience as commander-in-chief during the uh, Second World War, and then uh, he presided over NATO. Uh, and um, he was um, in a position to appreciate what intelligence could do for him as president, uh, he also, uh, I think, um, greatly appreciated what the CIA achieved under Alan Dulles in terms of the Soviet estimate. Uh, the CIA, uh, it was very difficult to know uh, the extent of the Soviet threats because the Soviet Union was a closed society. And the CIA um, developed a very clever economic analysis of how to find out how strong the Soviet economy was. Alan, Alan, Alan Dulles' speech is actually very good on this. 
very economically quite sophisticated. Um, and, and they concluded that uh, they couldn't possibly produce as many bombers and as many missiles as some people feared. And Eisenhower was perfectly ready to go along with this. And uh, he made sure that uh, uh, American national security policy didn't become over-aggressive towards the Soviet Union uh, based on false estimates. So he, he was suddenly uh, someone who, who listened. Um, I think that um, the, the current president, President Biden, is likely to prove to be someone who listened uh, partly because uh, William J. Burns, his current director of, this, of the CIA, is, is a really impressive guy uh, who knows Russia inside out, was an ambassador to Russia and, 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 and so on. Um, and they've, they've had their differences, of course, um, over Afghanistan and the speed of uh, US withdrawal from Afghanistan. So did Obama, I think, listen to John Brennan, uh, in, in particular, uh, I think John Brennan was an impressive uh, director of the CIA. Uh, for example, he uh, at one stage told uh, his uh, Russian counterparts that it was a big mistake to try to intervene in American politics because it would be a backlash. This is long before it actually happened, and boy, was he proved was he proved right. And he he was also the, the, the person who. Uh, took some action on a, on a point that a lot of people had been worried about, which was digital um, warfare, and set up a new a department. Uh, or I think it was the Department of Digital Innovation in the in the in the CIA. He was impressive, and I think that um, <coughs> President Obama listened to him. So, so we do have we have had uh, presidents who, who listened to the CIA. And looking at a. Uh over the 75 years that you have examined the CIA, help us understand as well, how much has the CIA treated the president as a client and how much has it treated the president as a customer? So I'm thinking for a customer, okay, I hear that you don't like what we're telling you, let's have another look or we just keep information from the customer that they don't want to hear or that is going to be uncomfortable for them. And how much is it being like a client, like a like a lawyer, like uh, uh, you know, I hear what you're saying, but that doesn't really matter. These are what the facts are, and this is this is my analysis of how we should proceed. Yeah, well, well, where do you see that line over the years? Has it stayed constant? Has it consistently been on one side or the other, or has it just? Well, it it, it has it has. Uh, I think it's varied uh, considerably uh, over the years, and there's no. Uh, straight answer to it, because sometimes you, you find that um, the, the CIA is pressing its view on the, on the, on the, on the president, and the, uh, regardless of the fact that it's bad news from the president's point of view, and he, he, he really doesn't want to hear this. Uh, but uh, at other times, uh, the CIA, in order to preserve its overall standing in the White House and its influence, uh, and, and indeed in order for the director of the CIA to keep his job, they may modify what they're telling the the, uh, the, the presidents. And the story of the v Vietnam war years is, is, is not edifying in, in that respect. Uh, the CIA had a, a lot of information in indicating what was going wrong. Uh, they, they did, to a certain extent, communicate that to presidents um, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. Uh, but they didn't really press their case. And one... Um, a uh, question I, I would ask is why has no director of the CIA actually resigned because the president isn't listening? You know, if you have a really important problem, a really important uh, divergence of, uh, of outlook, uh, why has none of them resigned? Almost all of them will talk about the importance of speaking uh, truth to power. But in, in practice, it's, uh, it's a varied uh, picture. And in the case of the weapons of mass destruction uh, controversy, I think that's the case. People in the CIA knew very well that Saddam Hussein did not possess, possess weapons of uh, mass destruction. Uh, but um, it would have been, it was judged imprudent to make a huge issue of it. 
and so um, the matter was let was let ride with with dire consequences for American foreign policy. I wonder if on the resignation issue is part of the answer there that the CIA director is not a policy maker. They are not there to say Cyrus Vance, Jimmy Carter's Secretary of State, Secretary of State Vance is there to say we definitely should not do this. I'm here to make policy. And because he felt like he wasn't listened to or the matter was so serious and important, he resigned. But the CIA director's not there to try to do that. The CIA director's just there to say this is the case or isn't the case. Do you think that's part of the reason why there's been no resignations? I think, I think it is part of, of the explanation, yes. Um, it's a blurred line. Uh, I think that... Um, there's no pressing reason why a civil servant, which is what um, the director of the CIA is, uh, should, shouldn't resign. Um, lesser people in the CIA have quit the agency and resigned because they didn't like what was going on. Uh, but of course, a, a supplementary question there is, it's one thing to resign, and you can tell people privately why you're resigning. Do you make it into a political issue? And there I think you you, you put your finger on a, on a problem when you say that uh, the director of the CIA is uh, not a politician. Uh, he could resign, but if, if we were to make a political issue of it, uh, wouldn't it be contravening the terms on which he was appointed? And at the present day, how do you see the CIA adapting to the changing historical picture it finds itself in? So we went from the Cold War to the period between the Cold War and, and the War on Terror, come out of the war on terror and now we're in this new environment where China and Russia are increasingly asserting themselves and the United States is being challenged in ways in which it hasn't been for quite some time. So how do you see this, this unfolding picture shaping up? Well, I, th I think we can be grateful that um, one of the reasons for the f formation of the CIA was Pearl Harbor and not just the, the, the opposition to the Soviet Union, uh, because it means that the CIA is still in business. Uh, and with the remit of uh, assessing threats as they arise and making adjustments uh, accordingly, uh, which is uh, quite, quite a challenge, of course. But that's what the CIA is, beginning, is, is, is doing at the moment. Uh, when um, <clears throat> in, in the wake of 9-11, there was a huge readjustment. Um, to um, in, in, in the direction of fighting uh, terrorism. And I, I was talking to someone who was uh, in charge of uh, what the Soviet, the Soviet Union had become uh, now, now that the Soviet Union was no more, the Russian, the Russian department. And he said that um, he, he was asked to uh, request that people from his analytical team move over to the anti-terror squad. And he said he did this, but tried to ensure that these people who went were uh, masters of all trades rather than specialists, so that he didn't lose his best people. Um, but uh, in, in recent uh, times, of course, that policy has had to be reversed because Russia, Russia has become a problem again. So CIA can't afford to rest on its laurels and uh, continue with systems as they are. It has to change all the time. It's been really great to speak to you. Thanks for your time and congratulations on your book. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at Spy Historian. 
This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K Cyberwire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.